Hello, everyone, and welcome to an all-new Deep Cuts Live. I'm your host, Antoine Reed, and today we have a uh, another special guest with us. It's uh, someone I met again in January, which seems to be where I met half the guests for this season so far. Um, so today's guest is Chris Weber. He is the CEO of Veritas Cigars. So um, very interesting brand, very interesting branding. So I'm looking forward to uh, speaking to him and getting to know more about Veritas. So let me bring on our guest. Hello, everybody. Chris, how are you? I cannot complain today. And if I did, nobody would care. So it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, it's like I was telling people in the intro, I met you in Vegas where I seem to have met like half the guests for the season so far. So, <laughs> so um you're a brand that has been around in the market for a long time. Um, Quite some time. It yeah. might be. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to getting to know a little bit more of your story. Um, for those people who are just watching for the first time, uh, Deep Cuts is more about getting to know brands that maybe you've seen in the humidor or you've seen or heard in the store, but you've never really given a try to. So some of the questions are kind of like uh, intro questions. So, uh, it's just meant to get to know you and the people behind the brand. So um, that's Perfect. where today's conversation is going to go. And then next time we speak, it'll, it can go into a completely different area because we would have gotten all this intro stuff out of the way. So um, works for me, man. Love it. Where I wanted to start is always at the beginning. So how did you get into the cigar industry? So in the beginning, we had a really interesting foray into it. Um, there was three partners originally, um, myself, Dave Larison, and a person we no longer speak about um, who ended up taking tens of thousands of dollars out of the business account. Um, but uh, we started it off as uh, more of like a, a regional publication called Cars, Bars, and Cigars. And what it was was more or less uh, for the Delmar area, which is like Delaware, Maryland, um, Virginia, Jersey, Pennsylvania. So car shows or bars that were doing car nights that wanted to incorporate cigars into whatever it was that they were doing for that particular thing. Um, that's how from there the idea morphed into why don't we just do cigars rather than acquiring cigars from either a local retailer we were getting them from delaware cigars at the time um why don't we just make our own cigars and then from there it just turned into full-time cigar brand at that point um we launched in june of 2011 wait when was my son born yeah 2011. um i had to remember because <laughs> it was one month to the day before he was born he was born uh, July 10, 2011, and so we were on June 10th, 2011, we launched, and we were at, uh, well, it was IPCPR at the time, now PCA, um, but that's how it started, and, you know, didn't think it would take that turn, didn't think we'd walk down that path, but we did, and 11 years later, here we are. So, you make it sound far easier than I'm sure it was like you just <laughs> like turn around and say, Oh, I'm going to start a cigar brand and, poof, and it happened the next day you turn over in bed and it's all done. Yeah. Well, so I don't know I'm, how much time you've got, but it's a lot of other details that go in between there too. Could fill a book. I'm, I'm always yeah, it was a lot. interested in that because so many people 
who smoke cigars at some point, they seem to get this idea in their head of, wow, you know, I could do this or I should start my own brand and it will be like this and that. So what was that transition for you like, like going from, you know, doing what you were doing with the publication saying, and getting cigars from other sources to saying, like, let's make our own cigars. Like, what was that transition like? You know, it was very interesting because um, it started out as an endeavor of just getting our own brand out there and not like not even thinking about it as a brand, but more or less just uh, as vertically integrated as we could be at the time. So rather than going out and paying, paying retail for boxes of cigars that we're going to give out at these events, uh, like supplying stuff that was going to be known as something, it wasn't going to be called Cars, Bars, and Cigars, or CBC as it became the colloquial, colloquially known at the time. Um, but as we were diving deeper into the process of getting the cigars, um, what factories do we talk with, et cetera, et cetera. How do we develop blends? Who comes up with the blends? That became, it, it was interesting because that transition opened our eyes to not just a different market, but a completely different business um, where our passion kind of fell into that area at the time. And it's not so much that we gave up on the publication side, it's more or less that it was it was a perfect storm of things that were happening at the time. All the connections that we had at that particular time, like dealerships we were working or working uh, working with in, in partnerships, getting bought out by other dealerships that no longer wanted to continue partnerships, um, whether it be advertising or supplying cars for events and stuff of that nature. Um, a lot of things started happening at the exact same time. We were working with Harrah's in Chester, Pennsylvania um, at that moment. And they were supporting a lot of these nights where we were actually scheduled to be on the premises. And the person that our contact that was um, working with us over there um, got transferred to another Harris property. And the new person that stepped in no longer wanted to have that cigar side of it, um, which is ironic in that, you know, that's the first place we faced cigar persecution, you know, and then after that you know it's a slap in the face from the fda and we've been fighting that battle ever since so yeah it was it didn't it's not as easy as i made it sound to be and it's definitely more complicated than i just said but there was a lot of different detours we took along the way and just because of a perfect storm of changes happening with our primary um not so much sponsors but yeah sponsors and and, and co-affiliates just made more sense to just completely detour and just focus on cigars full time at that time. So to, to backtrack a little bit, so the publication that you were working on, like what was your experience with that like? Because I, of course, work with publications and it's, again, it's one of those things where it seems a lot easier than it is because people get the finished product and they don't see all the work that you have to do yeah. to put it together. So what was that experience like? Well, truth be told, I came into that project um, I was the last partner that became involved in the initial partners. Um, and um, it, and <laughs> truth be told, it never went to publication for a single issue. Um, what it, I was the one that was tasked with going out there, talking to printers and um, um, advertisers, and I gathered advertisers, and then, you know, it takes a lot of money to print a magazine <laughs> and, yeah. and 
And when I, I cannot emphasize enough how much it costs. Um, you know, it wasn't so much that uh, we didn't have the money. We had the money. It was very cost prohibitive at the time. I had never been in publication at all. I don't have a background in that. Um, and, and I was in large part responsible for um, the transition more to cigars full time. And it's only because um, it just seemed like everything that we had tried to build towards led to that. Even though I know we were trying to start a publication, but when we were looking at it, it was like, we kind of felt our, felt, found our true passion for cigars at that point. Publication, we would have started, we would have continued with it. But again, everybody, everybody we dealt with that had committed to advertising or any sort of a cooperative working experience has either been gone, dealerships bought out, other things. I mean, people come and go in marketing departments. So, you know, we could chase down new advertisers or we could go with the thing that, you know, we were finding we were not just having success in, but we felt we needed to be there. And it's, it's a weird explanation or at times I'm at a loss for words because it's one of those situations in life where I can only say the only other experience I've had at that particular time um, was the birth of my son, where I just kind of felt complete. We felt complete in our business lives when we were working towards it. It just felt like we were gravitated towards that. So maybe it was fate. Maybe it was a perfect storm of events that led us there. I don't know to this day, but I'm very happy with the decision that we made. So when you decided to start your own cigar brand, mm-hmm. what what was the first step that you had to to deal with or that you had to take? Because I know some people start with figuring out the name of the company. And then some people Mm. figure out like how we're going to get this made first and then let's worry about the name. So like, (laughs) what was the first step that you had to take in that process? The funniest thing, the easiest part for us was the name. Um, Veritas comes from my high school motto, Veritas Sine Temore, which just means truth without fear. Um, The, that seemed like the easiest part for us. There's no right or wrong way to start a cigar company as far as i'm concerned you know there's no blueprint to step one step two step three step four um so however you get in it is is up to yourself but for us it was name first then it came down to what kind of profile did we want to have all right and then from there we were sent blends from a factory admittedly in the beginning we never went down to it we we had not gone down to nicaragua spoken to very, very many factories the third partner that did not complete his tenure with us, um, chose a, a factory. I don't denigrate anybody and the experience turned sour, so I won't give the name out. Um, mm-hmm. People that know us know it, but it, it's not too important to, to know who that first particular factory was. Um, but that was the path that we chose. And as we kind of learned on the fly for some of it, and what we found um, throughout the process, because we had various degrees of skills to our background. I mean, I came from finance. Um, Dave Larison, uh, he was very high up with 7-Eleven, running all of their their layouts within all of their stores. Like, why is Coke here? Why is Entman's at the end of the aisle? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we had various degrees of experience. And what we found out is that meant next to nothing entering into the tobacco industry. Um, you know, from a retail perspective, I'd say Dave had the most useful background uh, a web that we could pull from um 
finance is easy in a cigar company. You know, my expenses are X, my outgoes, my income is Y. The difference is, you know, either positive or negative. Um, but uh, a, a lot of the stuff that we really fine-tuned, we didn't really start finding somebody that could help us with that until about two years later in 2013, who we met at the IPCPR, at what they called themselves at the time. And that man was Carlos Sanchez. And he is where we first started getting a lot of help in teaching us why blends work certain ways about individual tobaccos, first starting rolling probitos and tasting individual tobaccos. And much like you would do in the kitchen, even if you're an amateur chef, you know, I know what salt tastes like. I know what that tastes like. I know I'm cooking this. I think this would go together. Learning to approach blending from that perspective. Branding kind of came easy to us, um, not to toot our own horns. So for us, where we really had to fine tune and, and learn our skills was actually more on the tobacco side of things, on the packaging side of things. And Carlos taught us a lot. And we were very, very lucky we didn't make expensive mistakes every mistake that we that we had made which admittedly there was a few nobody's perfect um we were we were very lucky in that we we didn't lose a lot of money doing it we were able to keep going and moving forward so i'm always interested to when people make that transition from being a cigar consumer to a cigar brand owner what that transition is like because it's almost like going from being passionate and loving something to suddenly you have to look at it from a, a slightly different angle, maybe sometimes. What was that transition like for you? I actually think it was, it ignited my passion that I didn't, I, I'd always smoked cigars. I'd been smoking cigars since I was in high school. Um, and for myself, I actually had a like a fire inside me that ignited because I'm a tinkerer by nature. You know, if I'm, I'm not just building whatever the instructions say on the Lego set, I'm going to also tear it apart and build something that's in my mind. Tobacco let me do that in a way that wasn't overly complicated. Like if you put like a PlayStation 4 in front of me right now and told me to take it apart and reassemble it, couldn't do it. Way, way too complicated. But the ability to just cultivate the idea not just of a brand forget a brand let's talk about the finished product being a cigar we take for granted at least as a consumer i took for granted really what went into the thing that i would pick up out of the box hand to the retailer make my trend my financial transaction and go out and smoke it when i saw everything that went into making that cigar um fire built inside me and the first time I, we went to esteli when carlos invited us down the first time i fell in love with the country um you know it, it was seen from far from field to to the galeras from the galeras moving on into the your your warehouses from the warehouses into the fermentation process from the fermentation process onto the sorting areas and the sorting areas being stored back into the warehouse then being handed out back to the production people you know it it was it's this is one of the last romantic industries that are out there i mean scotch is still up there wine is still up there to some degree brewing is still up there but it's one of those things where 
I, I don't really think I had my passion for cigars until we entered the industry, really. I liked them. Uh, they were something I did on a daily basis. I smoked cigars on a daily basis. I didn't really put much thought into why I liked what I liked until I started working on developing things. And that's when I started, the, the brain kicked in. I was thinking about it at a level that was light years ahead of how I was thinking about it beforehand. Um, yeah, so our passion really came from entering the industry. We didn't think it would be that way. We already thought we were passionate. What we found out was not nearly as passionate as we were going to be. And it also sounds like when you saw the process behind bringing that, what it takes to bring one cigar to the market and all how it's made and stuff that, that made you appreciate it a little bit more as well. A lot more. I mean, um, for people that haven't been able to take any of the cigar tours, I would, if you, if you're passionate about cigars, the way that I am, um, I would do it, take the chance, you know, spend a few dollars and, and go down on one of maybe Drew Estate Cigar Safari or, you know, Oveja Negra does a great tour as well. Every, lots of factories do it their own way. Placencia puts on a great tour. Um, when you see that, it kind of ignites that fire inside of you that you didn't know was missing at that point. Um, you know, I've never worked in an industry before. I mean, I work in finance uh, and industrial supply as well. And I, just, I come from a very, very varied uh, background. I didn't really... So I started doing this and I realized I can actually love what I do. And for me, where I actually find that I fit in best to the process is now that we have our own factory, I, I find I fit best into the background um, rather than being the forward face of, of our particular, our brand, our company. Um, and I like working with our blenders, coming up with uh, probably, we have more blends in our blend book than we'll probably ever release, you know, but the process of being able to discover new and exciting things and the things that probably, the blends that excite us most, we'll, we'll find a way to get it to market. Um, but that's where like, and I never thought going into this that I would find that I would fit in more back end. It's not that I wanted to be the face of the company, it's just that I kind of fell into that role. Um, <laughs> And uh, where I found my true passion was back in. I absolutely love it. You know, being in, not just being in Esteli, being around the production floor, working one-on-one uh, -on -one with uh, a production, um, with one of our blenders and one of our production couples, being able to try something new, letting it sit, then coming back and readdressing it four or five, six months later, seeing what time did to the blend. Um, again, all the things that when you're a consumer, Maybe some consumers thought about it more in depth than I did, but I certainly didn't. And that's where I found that um, this is, like I said, this is one of the last true romantic industries out there. And when you say romantic industries, just for those people who may be confused by that term, because they might think romance in a completely different way. Just I, in, in no way do I mean that sexually. <laughs> right. I mean, so just explain like what you mean by what how are cigars romantic because i know some people that would be a foreign concept to them so to me um when you see there is probably a thousand people that touch this leaf before you do it and for the most part there are machine-made cigars out there for the most part this is done entirely by hand 
Um, when I say romantic, it, I mean more dating back to like the origins of the romance languages. Like everything is bore out of Latin and you have French and you have Spanish and you have Italian. Um, and it's not that those particular languages mean anything sensual, sexual, loving or anything like that. It's just where for me, the romance is in the beauty. The beauty is that this is an industry where literally anybody, whether you're starting with $10 million or $10,000, you have the ability to enter this. And it's, and it's generally speaking, most everybody actually has a passion for what they do. All right. You know, you don't enter this industry without a passion in it. It's a hard industry to be in. It's a competitive industry to be in. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean you're not going to be successful in your own way. But to me, when I say romantic, I mean that turning that passion into something from the conception of, a, of an idea, whether it be a blend or whether it be a brand, and then bringing that to market. Very rarely can you do that. I mean, most of the things we buy as consumers are already preconceived by something, whether it's Lego, whether it's Microsoft, it could be Apple, it could be Samsung, whatever. You know, we're consumers. This, and to me, there's nothing romantic about designing a cell phone. <laughs> you know, it's just another piece of machinery at that point. This is something that's cultivated by hand. To me, that's what I mean by, ro by my romance. This is more than one person at each individual level putting a certain degree of expertise. A lot of blood, a lot of sweat, a lot of tears. Um, you know, that's what I mean by all that. Putting all this stuff together. It's, and it's something that, for me it's a little bit difficult to describe but i know it when i see it so it's everybody working collectively together to bring something together and in some cases it's you know aspects of our business that we're not even directly involved in like farms that we purchase tobacco from and factories that make our boxes and things of that nature it's that's what i mean by that so what was the first veritas cigar that you all worked on and what was the process like bringing that cigar from concept to market. So the very first stuff dating back to 2011 was the aroma, the Dea. We were on a very Latin kick back then. <laughs> so Dea is like Latin for goddess. Um, and we had this, you know, far out there idea of like the goddess of field, the goddess of agriculture, Ceres, um, which would be specifically the Roman goddess, not the Greek goddess. Um, and, uh, then we had the MMXI, which was a Maduro, and then we had the Tri, T-R-I, um, and that was the four cigars that we came out with at first, various different sizes. Everything had a Toro, everything had a Robusto, um, everything had a 660, the Connecticut had a Salomone, and everything had a Torpedo, um, and those were the first four brands. Again, um, I'm not proud of the origins of how things came together. Looking back on it, it seemed rushed. Um, and thank God we were able to uh, succeed to some degree at, at that particular time. No, we're at the, at the level that we're at now. Um, but those were the first. After that, when we met Carlos Sanchez at the Orlando IPCPR, went into his booth and kind of told him, you know, not things that we were unhappy with, but things that we thought we wanted to be able to do better. And he brought a lot of ideas to the table, invited us down to Esteli, invited us to stay into his house. Um, two weeks later, we were down there. 
Um, and his factory, Takasa, has had been in business for decades in Esteli at that point. Um, and he said, even if you guys don't end up using my factory for production, I'll at least teach you enough so that you guys can be a little dangerous. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, ended up liking the process so much. We're very happy with the things that we came up with together. We dropped those four previous brands. We knew we would come back to them, but we figure, okay, we're gonna make a change. Um, let's do a fresh change. We started with Torch and Torch came out in three blends, which was Connecticut Habana Maduro. Um, from there came the 412 then the Veritas Maduro, and finally the free blends, which we have on the market today. Those are the core line of what we have on the market today. Now, do you make blends based on your palate, or do you make them based on what you think the market is looking for? Because I know that different people have different approaches to that. So, like I said, we made a few mistakes along the way. Um, yeah, we first blended to our palate, <laughs> um, which, you know, I have a more aggressive palette. Dave had not so much a, a, a mild palette, but definitely not the same palette as me. So, for instance, I like full body, full spice. Uh, I do, and I like a lot of pepper. So, if I was going to pick um, a cigar, not ours, that I would go to regularly, uh, Flying Feral Pig would be that cigar um, at the Drew Estate. That's kind of where I'm at. So, um, that was the concept behind the initial 412 was to come out with something that was full in body, but also full in flavor that had spice. Um, so, and I think we accomplished that. And then, um, yeah, then we kind of just realized it can't always be about what we like, because you got to look at the, the market as a whole. And I represent one person out of God. God knows how many. So, you know, we started looking at what what was the feedback of what is maybe trending. And we started out with trends, following what that trend was. So there was a broadleaf trend, and then there was a trend going back to Connecticut. And then, you know, everybody's going to make a 660. Um, and then um, from there, we really started getting into our wheelhouse of developing something that wasn't just liked by us because no company should make something that they don't themselves like, but understanding mm -hmm. that it was coming, uh, we were trying to hit the market. We were trying to appease the market and have something that others would enjoy. And when we started looking at it that way, we started to take off. So what would you say was the biggest challenge as you kind of mentioned, you know, going through some of these growing pains or, you know, you put out a product and maybe it, it wasn't, uh, it didn't land as you hoped it would. So what, what, what were some of the challenges that you kind of faced early on in your, in your company? And how did you get over those challenges? So I'd say one of the first challenges uh, early on was finding where we thought we, we fit into the industry. Where do we fit under the market? Um, it's one of the things that a lot of companies don't really look at that. It, they look at themselves as this is our company, this is our product, this is what we offer. But uh, um, it wasn't until I started really working for a, an industrial company called MSC Industrial Supply, that where they really taught us where 
the value of understanding where MSC fit in the marketplace of industrial supply. For instance, we specialized in metalworking. Um, so uh, cutting tools was nobody was better than us, not Granger, not MSC, not like MasterCar. So it's understanding one where you fit. So then this was still, it's funny, like in 2011, 2012, 13, we really hadn't as an industry defined what boutique meant. Mm-hmm. We just, it was one of those things again, where you knew it when you saw it. So, you know, what I had always been told this, the standard that I heard the most was boutique meant less than 65,000 boxes a year. I don't even know if that, that is still a reference point for boutique to this day. Um, but we knew that we were boutique. We knew that we were catering to a small, and we knew that boutique was a niche part of a niche industry. So in the whole tobacco, the global tobacco industry as a whole, premium cigars are a very small portion of that. Not to say that it's not large. It just means that between the cigarettes and everything else, that is the vast majority of the tobacco quote unquote market. So we knew that we were a niche within a niche. And so we, once we started understanding that it became a lot easier to fit into that and to fit into the market. Cause we, it's, we realized not for the lack of a better term, who we were competing against. Um, you know, I don't look at other brands as competitors. I look at other brands as colleagues. Um, some people may or may not look at that myself as that, you know, sometimes people love you. Sometimes people hate you, but it was also understanding that as long as we stayed, tr- once, once we understood that, let's stay true to a specific set of goals that we have for each and every individual skew. And that's that's the most important part right there. You have to understand where you're fitting into the market and you have to understand what part of that market you want to try and, and attack and obtain. Because it's funny you say that because when I got into the cigar industry back in 2010 as a just a graphic designer, I would know I would read these stories that would come across my desk to design and boutique was like, I don't want to say it was a bad word, but it was a word to kind of separate, you know, that some of the larger companies would kind of use, you know, in an offhanded way to kind of separate, you know, other companies from the bigger companies. Like, like we have the big brands and we have the brands that are going to sell. And now I think over the years, you know, here we are, that was 2010 and here's 2022. I think that's kind of changed a little bit where retailers that a lot of them that I speak to are actually looking for what we would call boutique, you know, because they offer more opportunity. They give them an advantage. They want brands that maybe the store, you know, 20 miles away or even 10 miles down the road around the corner. If you're in Florida, you know, the next store down (laughs) doesn't necessarily have or or carry, you know, they, they, they don't want to, offer the same thing. So it's like boutique is, is in a way is opportunity is, you know, you don't have to, you know, make thousands of cigars. You could easily make, you know, lots of limited runs and, and have success. That, and I agree a thousand percent with that. So it's interesting the way that you put that is that boutique did almost feel like the, I just remember going into stores and telling them, oh, we're a boutique manufacturer and you almost get the eye roll, mm-hmm. you know, and, but it's changed from an eye roll to, oh, tell me more. Now they're excited about it. So, you know, I won't necessarily say we were, we're, we were in the beginning. I mean, I think there were several brands that kind of 
really started that movement. Tatawahe would be one of them. I mean, what Pete did in the beginning was, you know, uh, the I, I would think a, a part of the beginning of the boutique movement. But for me, when anybody asked me to define boutique, um, I would say small production focusing on quality over quantity. It's the simplest definition that I can make. It's not to say that the larger guys don't specialize on quality over quantity. Um, but you know, we're, we're, it's like the craft brewery movement. We're using better ingredients. We're not, we're ensuring that the longevity of our supply chain for ingredients in this particular case, materials, tobacco. Um, and from there, you're just getting something that's just, let's say richer, um, more depth, more complexity behind it. I mean, when you're big, it's hard to keep that up. Yeah, it's just a fact of life. You know, if, you, if you're if you're big, you're talking about dealing on tobacco on a level that's, I mean, the numbers just boggle, boggle the mind. So in order to get what's needed to be considered boutique, I mean, you almost have to focus on a smaller scale, for sure, just because of availability of product and costs associated with it. Now, I know at, you at some point decided to start your own factory which I'm sure mm -hmm. an advantage that you realized that you probably had hoped maybe early on that you were able to do it a lot earlier. So just talk about that decision to open a factory. Cause again, that's a whole different side of the cigar industry. Now, now you're going from being a brand owner to also being, you know, a factory uh, operator, which is different. Yeah. So when I first went down to Estelate, when Carlos invited us, it wasn't until I got there, Dave, Dave and I both got there, where within the first 48 hours, I said, Dave, we have to do this. He's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, we have to, we have to open up a factory eventually. I'm not saying tomorrow. I'm not saying next year. I remember the conversation very vividly. Dave's a very, we'll call it a fiscally conservative. And I don't use that term in a negative way, but right. you know, where I'm, an idea guy that has a lot of and, and the ability to plan out an idea. He's the guy saying, how are we going to pay for it? Where's the money going to come from? All right, let's pull the money out of savings. But what's our plan? A, B, C, one, two, three. Um, so it was very easy to have the idea. Um, and it didn't happen until 2018, where we really first started that. Um, so obviously, it didn't happen until several years later. Um, and from that, it, for me, again, this just comes back from my MSC days because MSC really touted in the training the, the importance of not just supply chain management, but vertical integration. So the only the best companies out there are as vertically integrated as possible. For cigars, that means at the time it wasn't even the conception, but it, to be a completely vertically cigar, uh, vertically integrated cigar company, you'd have to have fields, grow your own tobacco, have a box factory, make your own boxes, import all your own hinges for said boxes, paint, screen printing, the whole nine yards, and then making cigars. So for us, it just came down to what we noticed in cigar factories that we worked with. And when we left Tacasa and went to work with Oveja Negra for that year, um, it was really eye-opening to see not just everything that we learned from Carlos, but seeing how another factory that was also um, equally successful in their own way at that point, that how they operated, why they did things the way that they did. And um, 
learned a lot from them and have a lot of respect for James and Angela, what they're doing even to this day. And even in this cigar bar that we have, that we're opening out in Hawaii, it'll be the, we're a customer till the end. I mean, again, they, they, they blend to our profile, but what we learned over there was how you could take the same types of tobacco and how you can have a more aggressive profile that goes behind it, you know? For instance, when we were talking about doing 412, James had a very unique way of approaching, um, in his mind, what he thought should be done to take 412 to the next level his way. And I, I won't go into that because it's not my place to speak for him. Um, right. But um, everybody does it their own way. And so what we wanted to do with opening up the factory was develop our way, taking everything that we learned. and. I've said this before and I'll continue saying it. Every single time we worked with another production facility, I went in there with my mind as a sponge trying to soak up as much information as I could, um, learning as much as I could. And I know that I don't know everything. And I'm never going to know everything. And I don't even tell you that I, own, that I know the most, but of what we learned, we had a very good idea of where we wanted to get. The next part of it was... The, the excitement of going out and finding suppliers, finding the tobaccos we want to work with, make in. And then that was the other part of wanting to do the factory. So when working with another um, person's production facility, you work into their time frame. So you might have an idea now, it might be fresh in your mind. And at least with me, um, sometimes I forget or I don't remember the entire thing. So it's the inability to be working now that um, for my, myself personally in, inhibits creativity. So the other part of it is being able to say, all right, let's yank in, you know, you two, Francisco, come over here. Let's sit down. Here's what I'm trying to accomplish. Let's go back into the warehouse. Let's pull the tobaccos out. I want to see what happens if we do X, Y, Z. It's the ultimate experimental process at that point, because whenever I would work with a different factory, I'd always go down to that factory and spend some time there. I didn't want to feel like I was really wasting their time through my own process of experimentation. And every single person that we worked with more than, more than allowed us to be able to do that, but be able to do it in our way, being able to choose the suppliers, being able to adapt, pivot on the fly. For instance, if you want, if we wanted to come out with our, like when we came out with our, 10-year anniversary blend which is yet to be released because we're letting it sit and age properly right now but when we came out with faded it was the ability to have this idea on our time frame on our timetable without the pressure um and when we wanted to start production we could um i'm very respectful of a, of a business and i tell this to our factory customers all the time it's like okay you want to place an order i'm going to let you know where you fit into the production schedule but it's not going to start tomorrow so and it's just the reality of life unless you can control that process you can't control the you know the rollout so you're beholden to another factory's busy schedule and if they're busy and you place an order in march they might not start working on it until say may which pushes you back until august september so that was that was part of it as well the other part is being able to do it our own way um, being able to say that we created that and we truly did rather than another company that uses another factory or basically a marketing company at that point, which there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. If that's the way that you choose to run your business, then all the power to you. There is no right or wrong way to be in this business. For me, I wanted to be a creator 
and this is our way of being able to do that. So you, you just mentioned Faded, but I know that that's a big release that you all have been really focusing on. So could you just touch on and share what you can about Faded and um, what so makes it Faded's our 10 year anniversary and we're in our 11th year. So I know we're you know, a year late, but again, um, the other thing that we learned with uh, having our own facility was experimenting with aging times. Now, if, what if we don't go on the normal route? What if we do seven months of aging? What happens then, et cetera, et cetera. So Faded for us was the celebration of a decade in the industry. It's an African Cameroon um it's on the medium profile side because with cameroon leaf it's really easy to overpower it it's a delicate leaf to roll it's a delicate leaf to blend with in our experience so we have a solid medium medium plus with a lot of depth behind it but you're able to get these the the tastes and the nuances of the cameroon on your palate on your tongue on your on your lips and that's what we were going for we didn't want to have something that overpowered that and there's no point in using the cameroon if i can't taste the you know the the most fanciful part of the blend there is no point in using that tobacco so we have some a blend that's very complementary to the leaf um it's going to be uh coming out in a limited production box the um it's probably going to end up being an annual an annual release rather than the one and done um, jesse flores um did all of the artwork for the for the box um and for the ring um when i met jesse down um at the beach in, in in nicaragua you know i saw him over there said hey i'd say hey if you're interested i'd like to work on the project with you here's my idea he said but this was over easter week of 2020 uh, so, you know, we got back from Easter week and we sat down and I told them kind of what uh, the concept I had in my mind for where I wanted the artwork to be, where the origination for the name came from, came from a song from um, Alan Walker called Faded. Um, for us, Faded, when you see the artwork, it'll be more make sense to the explanation I'm about to give. But we've been here 10 years. We've had our ups and downs. We are weathered. We are beaten. But we are our foundation is strong. We are still here and we are still moving. And do you, in, in terms of, <laughs> in terms of the other cigars that you all make, I know that you're working on some new Vitola sizes and stuff. So what's, what else is kind of on the boiler plate for you all? So we're going to um, thicken the herd, so to speak. We're going to be adding uh, more sizes to 412, more sizes to three blends, more sizes to Veritas Maduro. We're going to be um, re-adding or adding back the original four size uh, offerings for all of the torch line. Um, so in, in, in addition for torch, in the addition to the Toro and the Robusto that we have right now, there'll be the Torpedo and there'll be the 660. I don't know what sizes we're going to do with 412 yet. Suffice to say that there will be a, 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 a Lancero, which is my favorite Vitola of all time. Um, Lanceros to me are the best Vitola to taste a blend with. Um, probably going to put that in the 660 as well. Three blends. Um, we have, um, I can't do it in the Lancero. The blend is just too weird because it, because of the nature of everything involved in the cigar and the fact that it's a portionate, uh, proportionate box press. Um, Lancero kind of screws up um it, it, it compresses the uh, the bunch a little bit too much so and then we're going to be bringing out some of our old stuff 
that we had back in 2011. So we'll bring back the aroma, we'll bring back the MMXI, we'll bring back the tri, and we'll bring back um, the uh, the data along with the uh, Culebros that we had on the market back then as well. Culebros to me are, are that's a true cigar romance. Vitola, based on the story behind the Culebros, at least the story that I was told behind what the Culebra <laughs> was supposed to be. Um, and that's going to be a variation of our three blends blend split down into three wrappers. So one of them will be a Connecticut, one will be the Pennsylvania Broadleaf, one will be the Habana. I'm just curious, what was that story that you heard about that? So Carlos told me that the Culebra was when, when you were working in the cigar factory, you were only able to bring one cigar home with you at the end of the day. And so what the production crew would do would um, take a basically a Lonsdale, curl it up, tie it on both ends with a tobacco leaf. And when they were exiting the factory, the guy would look at it, not quite sure what it was. And they'd say, see, it's, it's one cigar. And he goes, okay. And then when they got home, they were able to untie the cigar um, from, uh, untie the stem. And they had one for before for dinner one for during dinner and then one for before they went to bed and that's what i was told the culebra was or at least wow. its origin never heard that story so it's always interesting yeah i'm not around that back then so i couldn't tell you <laughs> it's like i can't speak to the truth on it really um, a minute ago you mentioned the african cameroon uh, tobacco so i was just curious off of that uh, is there a certain type of tobacco that you really enjoy and enjoy kind of trying to work into different blends that you create? I am a huge fan of Pennsylvania Broadleaf. Um, I like, but I never thought I would like San Andreas. And then I started working with San Andreas, realizing it's easy to work with. San Andreas also has a lot of taste. And one of the thing, the characteristics I like about Pennsylvania Broadleaf is it's thick, it's dense. That's also one of the hard characteristics about it. Whereas San Andreas is every bit as big of a leaf, but it doesn't have the same earth tones behind it that hit my palate that a Broadleaf would or Pennsylvania Broadleaf would. So you get uh, more of that Maduro complexity that goes along with it. So I like to work with both those. Um, any cigar we make always has Lajero Esteli in it. It's got to. Um, I can't, I, in my, I was always taught you can't have a premium cigar without Lajero, and there's no better Lajero on the market than Lajero Esteli as far as I'm concerned. Well, I just wanted to know, because like I said, I'm always curious about what uh, tobaccos different people in the industry enjoy working with, or is there a certain type of tobacco that you don't particularly like that you kind of stay away from? Yeah. No, pretty much open to everything. I mean, we've even worked with Candela, um, which for me was difficult to get around, but luckily we have very experienced blenders at our factory. So we have two blenders at our factory, both of which are experiencing working with that. We're open to anything. Um, we have come across some stuff we've used. I'm, I'm not a big fan of Dominican tobacco personally. It's a little too mild for my palate, but mm -hmm. that's just me. That's not saying, that's not me saying it's bad. It's just, not what I want to work with because it's more difficult to get to the profile I want to get to in my experience in working with that, you know, and then Skip goes out there and starts working with, you know, 
EP and coming out with something that's coming out. So he, he, he might prove me wrong in that too. So, um, cause I know the stuff that comes out of Nico Sueno is, uh, um, almost as aggressive. So, um, there's nothing that we don't really work with, but for us, um, we're more transitioning into using, um, Aguilarza fillers, Creole 98, Cadero 99, 2012 when it's available. Um, only for us because it's easy to use because I know that they've, to me, Aganorsa is the gold standard for um, tobacco growth, curing, and fermentation. Um, that and Placencia. So um, I, I don't have to worry about them making mistakes because they're beyond the point of making uh, mistakes with that. And I know that if it's got, if it comes out of Tabs's um, warehouse, it's going to be excellent. So from a filler perspective, we're transitioning over to complete Aganorsa filler. Um, and then a little bit of filler from ASP as well. So those are the suppliers we stick with. For wrapper, we're very, we buy from um, a few few places. Um, so, but as far as varietals, I'm open to anything. I'll try anything once. In terms of when you kind of look ahead for, you know, almost like that high school question of where do you see yourself in a year from now? Where do you see yourself five years from now? Where do you see Veritas in a, in a short time frame, so a year from now, and then in a longer time frame, like five or even 10 years from now? 10 years from now, I hope my son wants to be involved in the industry. He'll definitely be old enough to legally be involved in the industry at that point. He'll be over 18, um, over 21. Um, so we're, we're going to start experimenting with tobacco growth ourselves. to, um, like I said, I'm, I'm a, I'm a fan of vertical integration, but the thing I like about, um, growth on tobacco is that it's something new to experiment in. Um, you know, long ago, I, uh, not that long ago, I was told that the initial impression of me in the industry was that I was just some rich kid that didn't care. I didn't realize I came across that way. And so um until a friend that i value his opinion uh, a newfound friend within the industry um brought that to my attention i figured you know what let's start focusing on a lot more things specifically me self-introspection um in there in having a very intro in, introspective look of how i was doing what i was doing i cared the entire time so what that led into is like getting into new areas of tobacco. I know we're a small company. I'd like to always be a small company. Um, for one, it's easier to manage. Two, um, it's easy, as long as you're small, you, we can really ensure that the ingredients that we're using, the materials we're using, the tobaccos that we're using are always gonna be in a readable supply. So we can buy a lot and that can last a long time. Um, I, I wanna grow sustainably but I don't want to grow to a size that I'm uncomfortable with. I'd like to get within five years to two million cigars a year. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't necessarily mean just in the Veritas line from the factory level, that would be two million cigars a year that we're producing for ourselves and other people. Because we put the same passion into what we do for others as we do for ourselves. Uh, I treat it the exact same way. If I'm unable to get to your order quickly, I, I'm very upfront with you and saying, you know, I can't get it now. You might want to look somewhere else. People have waited. So that's good. Um, I want to be at a level where 
like I said, I want to get to two, 2 million cigars within five to 10 years. And that's where I'd like to be next year. I would just, I, I would like to have our first crop. Um, yeah. Picked, cured, fermented, try to see what we can do with that. And along the way, try to experiment with different seed varietals as well um, to try and uh, maybe even get into hybrid blends uh, for tobacco. You know, if we, uh, uh, I have a few contacts we've started talking with about genetically modifying seeds to come up with hybrid varietals. That interests me. And it may be a pipe dream. It may even be completely impossible. And I might be the wrong person to do it. But we're certainly going to try. At, at this point in the show, I like to kind of flip it a little bit and change it into like a little bit of an advice column type thing where you're going to offer people uh, advice based on your opinions and uh, experiences. Um, so there's usually two questions that I, I end with. So the first question is, what is your why? So what motivates you? What drives you to do what you do? Well, in life, everything I do for my son, Seamus, he's the only thing in the world that matters the most, that matters to me, really, above and beyond myself. Um, why do I do this? I hope that one day he can share the same passion with me um and hopefully work side by side that's my ultimate goal um if he doesn't want to do that if he wants to be a doctor or anything else i'll support him in whatever he wants but i would hope that uh, at least even if he does choose those paths that why he can at least enjoy what i create at that point together well and the second question is somebody comes to you and they say chris i want to start a business of my own it may not necessarily be a cigar business or related to tobacco at all, but they have an idea. They want to go out and start their own business. What advice do you give that person to help um, them? First, first thing I would say is if you don't know how to do it, find somebody that does. And that is write a business plan for yourself because a business plan is a blueprint. It's a map. It's uh, It tells you where I'm going to be here now and where I want to be. Without that business plan, you're kind of throwing shit at the wall and hope that it sticks. And that's not the smartest way to spend your money on a business. Um, but I would map out your goals. And then once you've mapped out your goals, figure out how you're going to try to achieve them. I mean, we started this, this business and we didn't really have a plan. And that wasn't, it was more or less because of um, the third person that was involved in, in the very beginning. Um, but once Dave and I sat down and we developed the business plan, okay, it's like, okay, here's where, we, this is the next step we have to do. How do we get there? Okay, after that, where do we need to go from there? And how do we get from A to B at that point? Then how do we get from B to C? Um, and um, that's the most important thing I could tell you is that that way you're not going to be chasing good money with bad money that eliminates waste, but it also helps you focus. And I can't tell you how many times, even to this day, at the end of every year, I write a brand new business plan for what I want to do for this year. What are my goals? How, what do I have to do to get to them? What are stretch goals? What are achievable goals? What are mid-level goals? That, that's the most important thing is to truly map map yourself out. And I'm not saying put pen to paper on one page. I'm, the business plan we write on an annual basis is about 16 to 18 pages long. And it wow. keeps me focused. And that way we know, okay, we want to do this. And it keeps you from saying, oh, this isn't my idea. Let's do this. Uh, with, do we have the money to do this right now? You know, it, it keeps, keeps yourself balanced and keeps yourself level. 
So going off of that, what what's your definition of success? Like, how do you measure these goals that you create for yourself? Uh, it would be easy to say you could measure it by financially. Uh, for me, it's does what we accomplish in, 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 the, in this industry is, is the blends or the brands that we accomplish, does it resonate with us? Does it resonate with others? Is it positively resonating or is it negatively resonating? And if it's positive, that's success to me. I don't measure it financially. I mean, it's not to say that I don't worry about money. Of course, I have bills to pay just like everybody else, you know, and I have to have income to do that. But if um, I've left a positive impact on at least one person with what we've done throughout whatever day we're doing, whatever, that's success to me. Used to be that I just chased money, you know, and, you know, it's my grandfather always taught me that if you make money, you're God, you're never going to be happy. And he found out that that wasn't the case. So, uh, for us, it's positive resonation with uh, the consumer base, our retailer partners, uh, both domestically and around the world. So in a couple of weeks, it's the big trade show for the cigar industry. What what can people expect from Veritas? I was hoping that Faded would actually be able to display at the PCA. It's, it just needs a little bit more time. So um, for, for us, you'll see that now we have uh, established and, and reputable brokers working with at this time. You'll see that we have a driven, focused goal of partnering with the retailers, uh, both current and new. And when I say partner with that, it's for us, it doesn't stop once the credit card transaction goes through. That's not the last time you're going to hear from me. And it's not going to be the last time you're going to see me. You know, it's not going to be the last time you see or hear from our brokers. We'll help you and we'll be as involved until the point of annoyance. It's on some, some points, but there's, um, you know, it's it's our job not just to get the cigars onto the shelves of the retailers. It's our job to um, educate the, the retailers, customers about our brand as well. And that is what we're, I'm sorry to say it took us 10 years to get to this point, but that's what we're doing now. <laughs> so we're here and that's all that matters. I think that's an important thing to, you know, for the cigar industry is like the retailers, they're small mom and pop stores too. And mm-hmm. I think when you talk to them about the biggest frustrations beyond, you know, taxes and stuff like that, that they sometimes have control over and sometimes they don't. The biggest complaint sometimes is it's just hard for them to get in touch with the manufacturers or to have that support or to feel like, you know, it's not just a transaction. So I think what you're, what you're talking about is a, a good thing because that's the kind of relationship that they are looking to have uh, with you and other manufacturers. Well, the other part of how we're going to help with that is going to be an ambassador program that we're going to roll out. And from the back end side, myself uh, and Joe, we're, we're really trying to like piece together how we want that to work. Cause I'm not just going to roll out another plan and just figure it out on the go. I'd rather have it set out, mapped out so that it's, it's, it's end user engagement at a level that benefits the retailer and obviously the brand. That's why we're doing it. Um, but, uh, that, that's, we were very driven towards, uh, re-gearing ourselves towards, um, end user and end user, uh, engagement. That's what our goals are right now. And I think that it's a, we have a successful plan. We're ready to roll out. And 
when we do, it's going to be more of things like this, more of um, consumer centered rather than retail centered um, marketing that goes along with that and, and uh, also retailer as well. But being able to combine the two, I think what we're about to do is is pretty unique and may not have been done yet. Awesome. So for those people who are not watching this live or on YouTube uh, after the fact, could you tell people what website they need to follow or go to to um, find out more information about you and your brand and also what social media they need to um, get attached to so that they can keep up with what you all are doing? VeritasCigars.com, VeritasCigars on, on Insta. I think we still have a Twitter. I'm not sure. <laughs> it's hard to tell these days um, if Twitter's even relevant. Um, but the Veritas Cigars, um, we uh, were pretty quick about getting back to messages. Any questions, whether it be, hey, I don't have a retailer in my area. Where can I try it out? Um, we're quick to respond back with uh, either a retailer that's close or one of our um, partner retailers that we work with on a routine basis, Leaning House Fine Cigars in Pittsburgh is is one of those. Dave ships nationally. So if you're not in the area, that's where you can go to try some of it. Uh, but even if you have a question or anything, like we're open to engage about any topic with anybody, let us know. Awesome. Well, I want to thank you for coming on and spending an hour and one minute <laughs> with us today um, chatting about Veritas. And like I said, on the next time you come on, we don't have to go through all the, the intro part of uh, introducing people to the brand. They'll, you can just refer back to this episode and uh, dive in. So thank you for coming on today. Of course. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. And um, thank you all for watching uh, or listening to this, however you all are consuming this episode. And if you're on Facebook or YouTube or Twitter, make sure you hit the like button or subscribe button. Um, we do interviews every week or we at least we try to. Um, and also, if you're listening to this on any of the podcasting platforms, just hit the subscribe button and also leave a rating or a review because those help us improve the show. Um, this is episode, I believe, 88 or 89. So there are like a whole bunch of other episodes if this is your first time uh, watching and listening. So you can find all the past episodes on DeepCutsLive.com um, to watch and to listen. All the links are there. And we will be back here on Thursday with Nicholas Melio from Foundation Cigar Company. For those of you who are watching live or want to put that on your calendar, um, come back here Thursday. And um, yeah, so it's been a great episode. Like I said, I've learned so much more about Veritas now. Now when I see you at PCA in a couple of weeks, I, you know, I'll have that, that intro and uh, all that knowledge of, of what you all have been through. So. <laughs> and I'll, I'll bring you something special from the factory as well. Something unreleased. <laughs> I'll look forward to it. I'll, I will, I will be there. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you, Chris. Thank you everybody for watching. And until next time. Cheers. <laughs>